We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Marie Howe is the former poet laureate of New York and the author of four books of poetry, including her latest Magdalene, The Kingdom of Ordinary Time, What the Living Do, and The Good Thief. Marie, welcome to Encountering Silence. Thank you so much, Cassidy. I'm very happy to be here with you. Thanks. We love to begin just asking about a memory of silence, and I wonder if you might be willing to share one of your earliest memories of silence. Might be a good memory, might be a bad memory, but just something that you immediately go to. Well, we're not going to start with words like good and bad, are we? <laughs> Touche. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't mean to be critical. I just think that complexity, right? Complexity is, not, uh, I mean, especially, I mean, about anything, but um, I understand what you're directing me. You're trying to free me up here, and I appreciate that. Well, I have two thoughts. First of all, I grew up in a family. Uh, I have eight brothers and sisters. And um, so there were 11 people living in my house growing up. Um, so it wasn't very quiet there, although there were moments of quiet. But I went to um, I went to a school called the Convent of the Sacred Heart. And they have there. Do you know them? Mm -hmm. you know them? Yes. You're nodding. Yes. Um, and uh it, it was a very highly ritualized school and kind of saved me in many ways. I went there from seventh grade through high school. Uh, there was the, in the, the chapel was so beautiful. It was very small, oh, very old, 150 years old, old for American chapel. And it had a little side chapel, the chapel of uh, St. Madeline Sophie. And I, we had this morning recreation period that lasted, uh, it started at 1010 and it went to 1030. And I was a girl who was trying to um, integrate myself, uh, which took many, many, many years. But um, in those days, I was, I was fractured in many ways. And I, I would run to that little chapel by myself during the 1010 recreation and I would, go there, no one else was in that chapel. It was dim and beautiful. And the little side chapel was out of sight, even if someone did come in. And that silence was the very sweetest silence I, I knew um, as a younger, growing young woman. Um, and I, I miss that chapel still. Um, there was something about about it, and I mean, I, I know these things don't really belong to a place, but that place felt like a kind of a shelter. Yeah, it was beautiful. It was a kind of a contemplative silence. It was a prayerful silence that was unspoken. When did you first start writing, and has silence been a companion in that? Oh yeah, <laughs> excuse me, I'm falling down laughing. Um, <laughs> so, so, I, I was writing since I was a kid. I wrote for my family. I wrote like goofy 
really goofy, really goofy little plays and um, uh, stuff. Like if you were my sister, I'd write for you for your birthday, something that would try to make you feel seen or recognized or, and, and so I, I wrote for my father. I wrote, I just wrote little stuff, but I didn't know until I was almost 30 that you could write poetry. I just didn't think that was possible. I, I wrote, I, I, when I got out of college, I wrote for a newspaper for several years, but it was before computers and um, I couldn't spell. And we used typewriters and it was, you know, like the old pasting on, you know, on the light boards, it was amazing. Um, and it was paid terribly, but, um, and I wrote for some magazines, but I really wasn't until I was 29 years old and I took a, I got a sort of fellowship for high school teachers up to Dartmouth College in the summer when I took a writing workshop where I realized that uh, I thought poetry was possible to write poetry. And I just didn't know until then. I thought you had to be dead or something, I think, really. <laughs> In fact, the woman who taught the class, her name was Karen Pels. People, we, all of us were there just for the summer. We were all high school teachers. And um, everybody went around and said why they were there. And I said, I don't know if I'm staying, I'm just sitting in on the first class. And then when we went around the room and then she said, well, I'm here because I'm writing my spiritual autobiography. And I, I shouted, kind of blurted out, who are you? to do such a thing. And she said, I'm a lyric poet. And I said, I want to do that. She said, then stay. And I did. I love the question. Who are you to do that? What, what were you thinking when you asked that question? I, I'm curious. I was thinking of St. Teresa, right? I was thinking of the interior castle. I was thinking of Augustine and the saints, you know, who, who I grew up with reading about. And, um, they wrote their autobiographies, you know, after when, when some older nun said, you have to do this. And, um, but I understood and intuited, of course, what she meant instantly. And I had read poetry in college. I mean, I loved it and read it and I wrote stuff, but I didn't show anybody anything. You know, I was typical. I mean, now I meet hundreds of people like me. <laughs> um, um, but then I was just, uh, I didn't know that there was a portal that there was a portal mm. and, and Karen was a portal. I mean, she went here, here's stay. And she opened a door. I mean, I had a lot to learn. I had to learn to sit in a chair. I really couldn't do that very well. I was a very anxious, very fractured uh, person. And to stay sitting in a chair was a triumph for me to be able to sit there longer than 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And then I slowly began to learn that when I wanted to get up, that was the time to stay seated and to keep writing. That that was the very moment. Now, since then, I have forgotten that. I forget it every single day because I'm not a fluent writer. There are writers who are so fluent, good friends of mine, little beautiful, beautiful poems come out. For me, it takes a very long, it, I, I don't wanna keep saying this because I feel like I reinforce it, but historically it's taken me a long time to move down through the gab and noise to be able to hear something else. So anyway, sitting and learning to sit in a chair is what I did that summer. 
you're reminding me of the desert fathers one of them said one of the elders said to one of the young young brothers go and sit in your cell and your cell will teach you everything yeah and so this idea that even staying put in your chair yeah the chair was i don't want to put words in your mouth but what i'm i'm kind of hearing is that that was that helped you to find your voice is that a fair or to hear a voice. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I want to be clear that the, the poems that I feel happen, I feel they really happen, I mean, through me. So a lot of it is just, I'm like, blah, blah, blah. I'm very, you know, willful. I have things to say. I have, this is my experience. And it doesn't mean all poetry, but, you know, I have lots of things I want to write about and say, but then it always fails and fails and fails until finally my will becomes exhausted. And for me, it often takes quite a long time for my will to become exhausted. <laughs> so sometimes something can happen then. But yes, I had to learn to fail too. As Becca says, fail, fail better, fail better. I mean, just keep failing. I really appreciate that because it feels like that comes across. It's a very embodied description of writing. You had to learn mm-hmm. to sit. You had to learn to fail. And for me, embodiment really is about falling down and getting back up over and over and over again, learning what that means. And yeah. it, it just seems, I, I love that you're confirming, I, like you said, it is your experience, but I, I want to affirm that's my experience as well. I, I hear a lot. I, I, I hear an echo of kind of my own process. Uh, so I, I appreciate what you're saying. Well, I think too, given the culture I grew up in, which is, you know, a white, culture that has privileged the individual. I mean, I think of poets who grow up in different traditions and it's not nearly as lonely. I mean, there's, I think of Joy Harjo, for example, our poet laureate now of our country, God bless her. Um, And she has a whole tradition of song and images and that she lives in and that the, the song and the dance of her people happens every day. Um, and poetry in, in the world I grew up in, you know, is in books on a shelf or it's, it's been, you know, you go for it when someone dies or when you fall in love or when someone has a baby. And so, or if you want to be contemplative, if you want to, you know, but, but there's, a, I mean, this was the old days, it's changed now, but I feel like that tradition of the poet alone in her room Maybe it doesn't have to be like that, you know? I don't think it is for some younger people, um, but for me, it it was. Because I think also I was one of 11 people in a family and and I had to kind of unmerge from that tribe to write anything at all, really meaningful. I was the oldest girl, so there's a way that the tribal, the tribe doesn't want you to talk. That tribe that I grew up in, Irish Catholic. Shh. I'm not mm-hmm. saying the individuals. I mean, all my siblings are. I adore them, but the tribe itself doesn't want you to talk. Yeah. A larger than any individual animal. This is interesting because that's certainly been a sense that I have had with several encounters with people, even in Ireland over the years, you know, a sense of either not having a voice or wanting to be very, very careful about how that voice is shared. 
That sideways and, um, voice, yeah. Yeah. And yet, the greatest poets in the world come from Ireland. So many great poets, you know, so many. I just, Avon Boland just died, um, the great Irish poet. And I was lucky to be fortunate to be asked to participate in a celebration for her on Zoom. And there were these amazing Irish poets, women, men. It was just a joy to be with. So, you know, it seems to me that conventional culture, you know, just wants everybody to just, you know, but artists, there's artists everywhere. Something that really strikes me, Marie, about the ordinariness of some of the things we're talking about, of sitting in the chair, mm-hmm. of the companion of silence, and mm-hmm. these kinds of things. And yet we all know that poets and artists offer something visionary, revolutionary, something beyond what is, beyond the use of language as is, or beyond the vision of um, what a face looks like as is. You see, I'm interested in what you're saying, as is. I mean, we could talk long and long about that, right, Cassidy? Absolutely. I was thinking about, um, uh, you know, Henry Nowen, is that how you say mm-hmm. his name, Nowen? He has that beautiful, he has a beautiful tiny piece about active waiting. Um, mm. And it's really, it's really about being present and how uh, he talks about Mary and saying that she, because she was present, she could see the angel. <laughs> I mean, which is a marvelous idea because possibly there's angels everywhere, but we don't see them. I mean, and so our, who was it said about Blake? Blake wrote this, I think, that when Moses saw the so-called burning bush, he didn't see a bush on fire. He saw the bush. He actually saw, really saw the Mm. bush Mm. alive with everything in the universe as you are, as we all each are, as the tree outside my window is a burning tree, if you will. And so that to see things as is might be the vision. (laughs) Might be the revolution, right, right. No, because really we can become accustomed instead of uh, actually seeing it in its wonder, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. it sounds kind of goofy when I say it, but I, I love that notion of the burning bush being in the bush, just a bush, just a bush, or just a peony, or just a lamb, or just my dog Jack, or my daughter, whatever, not my anything, just the isness of something. Absolutely. Right. Aliveness of it. Who can endure it, really? You know, mm-hmm. yeah. You know they do those experiments. You know where you, they have strangers come into workshops and just look at each other without speaking for five minutes, and they fall in love mm-hmm. because you you can't look into someone else's. I mean, you could defend yourself for a long time, but eventually you're going to glimpse them, glimpse them. You know, and and because most of us don't really see each other, we we see the surfaces. Have you ever heard of a wonderful man? He wrote a great book called Against the Pollution of the Eye. But the eye is a capital I. It's an extraordinary book, but he was, he's French, he was French. 
I think what he means by the I is the, the self with the capital S, you know, what Atman, I guess somebody, another tradition would call it, or, uh, um, but he, um, he was blind. He was blinded at eight years old, uh, totally blind. And when the Nazis invaded France, he wanted to work for the underground. And he was 19 at the time. And he went to the people who were working on the underground. And he, um, he asked if he could help. And they said, no, you're blind. <laughs> you can't. And so he started an underground newspaper, which became the underground newspaper of the underground. And on a day when everybody in the French underground was arrested because of a traitor, a thousand people were arrested in one day and sent to Buchenwald. He was arrested among them and he survived Buchenwald. And he went on to write this extraordinary book. And he talks about um, the advantage his pity for those of us who can see, <laughs> so-called see. He said, because people who can see actually believe in the surfaces of things. Hmm. Yep. <laughs> Silly people. Brilliant, brilliant, yeah. They actually believe in the surfaces of things. They think that's true. Right. So against the pollution of the eye, it's, I, I just think he's a wonderful man. This conversation on Encountering Silence will continue after a 30-second break of silence. Take a moment and breathe with us. So I have a follow-up on this vision question because I'm really struck by what one of the places I was going was um, the vision to see beyond and to see past and through and under oppressive systems. And I'm, but what I'm hearing is so much uh, reminiscent of what I read in, in Magdalene and Magdalene on Gethsemane, yeah. where you wrote, where you wrote about what Jesus was really feeling in his agony in the garden of Gethsemane. Well, when Magdalene said he told her. Right, right. Sorry, <laughs> thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. What Magdalene said he, he told, told her, her, which was that he saw others, the others, the countless in his name, raped, burned, lynched, stoned, bombed, beheaded, shot, gassed, gutted, and raped again. Mm -hmm. And you're right, it's the it it's the isness. It's the isness of the, the moment. Name of Christ. In the name of mm. Christ, that all happened, right? Mm. Can you imagine if you if you died and everyone said, for Cassidy Hall, we're going to kill six million people. For Cassidy Hall, we're going to go on the Crusades. You know, for Cassidy Hall, we're going <sighs> to kill all the Muslims. You know, for Cassidy Hall. <sighs> yeah, we have to take Jesus back because he's, yeah. you know, in, in the North Fry book about Blake, 
again, I can't remember who said it, if Blake said it or if Northrop Fry said it about Jesus, but it was something like he was so original. Nobody could imagine what he would say next. It feels like that's exactly the role of the poet. Not to be Jesus. I'm not I'm not trying to elevate, but what I'm saying is this conversation here is about seeing the isness and how we fall into you've you've already said for us that we believe the surface. We we need to remind ourselves that there's more than the surface. And and so that's truly being an original is to actually speak from that place as opposed to from the surface. What maybe that's why it takes so long for us to sit in our chair to get there. Because we're ready, or I mean, at least that for me—that's how it feels for me—that I got to go through the garbage in my head before I see it. Mm-hmm. Marie, this reminds me of the poem you wrote on prayer. I can't remember which book it was. Uh-oh. One more. You t- yeah. Yeah. You, you talk about I'm already getting ready yeah. to leave the chair before I finish you know. this sentence. Right. As soon as yeah, I finish yeah. this sentence. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. It's very hard for me mm-hmm. to be in the presence of. Well, this is a longer conversation, isn't it? I mean, how difficult it is to be in the presence of real joy. Uh, Am I the only one who has trouble being in the presence of real joy? I mean, I get a letter from somebody and it means so much to me. I close it right away and I can't read it again. That you feel that I'm so happy you understand what I mean. I'm like, what is wrong with me? You know, to endure that is very difficult sometimes. Isn't it maybe a breakdown in our common formation as people that, mm-hmm. that we we do not, and, and I'm gonna criticize the institutional church here. You know, the joy is the second fruit of the spirit and talk about an element that is said to be of the spirit that can be absolutely absent in so many of our churches and so many of our religious education programs and and moral theologies and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems to me that if we really took it seriously, going to church would be a blast. It would be fun. It would be just pleasure. And well, we have- not fun. It's something else. Okay, I mean, I hear you, Carl. Yeah. I hear you. I don't go to church and I stand kind of outside churches, so- I feel you and I hear you and I respect what you're saying. I think that something about a church hardens pretty quickly into dogma that I can't participate in. But I love churches too, and I love the people who love them. I lo- but but I do feel that joy is different from fun. I I agree. I just wanted um, to be be clear about that. But I also think that that's. I mean, and, you know, the younger you are, the more likely in, in America today, the younger a person is, the more likely they are to be right where you are, Marie, and to say, no, thank you, the institution, uh-uh, you know, maybe that worked for grandma, but not for me. Well, I think we and, much want community, we do. I do. Yeah. I, think, I think that's what's coming out of the pandemic, too. This mm-hmm. This quarantine has been fascinating, hasn't it? I mean, to be in New York, uh, it's been extraordinary. Um, the city, as you've read about, I'm sure, for eight weeks was quiet. I mean, birdsong woke me at 5.45 in the morning. Loud birdsong everywhere in New York. And pretty much all we heard during the course of a day 
was birdsong and sirens, ambulances and birdsong all day and night. And night even, the birds would be singing in the dark and then they would quiet down, but extraordinary Eros and Thanatos kind of, you know, like just, and also the sirens meaning help, but it's been extraordinary talking about silence. I mean, to live in the silence of a city gone quiet, New York, it's been really holy. It's been really beautiful. And, and except for the terrible suffering we knew was happening, um, which one can't accept because that's why we were all in our places in our little apartments and, but everybody would walk on the street and everybody was just walking in the middle of the street. It became a village again. And uh, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm meandering away from what you were saying. I, I, I feel as if what's kind of come out, one of the many things, I mean, this is such a confusing time because now these, you know, these murders are happening and this outrage and uprising is happening. And um, at the same time, when people need to be apart from each other, they're coming together and we're wearing masks and it's just so complex. But um, I do feel like people want community. They want to connect with each other. I just don't think we want dogma. You know, we don't want anybody saying what something is, what it has to be. What we need is a circle where everyone can tell their story. Yeah. The problem of dogma is one person gets to do all the talking. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah, like the Gnostic circle, you know, where they would meet in circles. Yeah. Marie, I'm struck that your writing seems to have a very strong thread of a solidarity with suffering in the world. And um, your book, What the Living Do, is about your brother's death at the age of 28 of AIDS. He would say um, he did not I, suffer, though, I have to say. <laughs> I hear John. He, he would say what? And one of the things John said often was, this is not a tragedy. I am not suffering. I'm a happy mm -hmm. man. I mean, there's a saying in AA, you know, pain is inevitable. Suffering is a choice. So he would say, I'm not suffering. Um, just, had, just had to say that because John was talking to me over my shoulder saying, I didn't suffer. Tell her yeah. I didn't suffer. Um, <laughs> um, you know, he was a love. He lived with Joe. He, you know, he... he, he, he he said, I'm, I'm a happy man. When I'm asked if I could love, I can answer yes. He really said that. Um, so yes, of course, he had terrible pain. I mean, he, 90 pounds, he, had, he was blind in his eyes. He had neuropathy, he couldn't walk. He was, a, he was but, but, but he would say he didn't suffer. Yeah. But there's pain, yeah. there's always pain. The has, Buddhist has, writing, has writing been a painful experience for you? And how do you manage that? I mean, there seems to be this, solidarity maybe in feeling that I'm sensing is better better word than suffering well writing about my brother was a joy mm -hmm. I mean he was one of my best he was my best friend and so writing about writing about John and telling some of those stories was an absolute joy it's a book of love poems really I mean yeah he was like my he was my spiritual teacher he was 11 years younger than I but uh he he led the way in many, many ways. And um, so, and John and I were always doing something together. We, had, we knew we had some project and I think this was it. Um, he really, I loved it. I loved writing about him. I loved speaking about him. I loved reading the poems to people. 
So it wasn't painful in that way, no. But I do think that growing up, I mean, one of the great things that, that I did learn at the convent school and with my mother um, really was to be aware uh, that while I'm sitting here, other things are happening um, all around the world. And it doesn't mean that I have to be doubled over in pain, but to be aware of it, to be, you know, someone's being tortured right now. Someone's giving birth right now. Someone's being killed right now. Uh, someone's having an orgasm right now. <laughs> Somebody is saying, this is the sandwich I've been wanting to eat for a week and they're eating it right now. I mean, all kinds of things are happening at this moment. And, and to be aware of that seems to me to be aware of the great family we're all part of, you know? So it's not just suffering. I think it's also joy too, or just, you know, identification, I guess I would say. Um, it could be me. I mean, why it isn't me? There's no reason why I wasn't the person being waterboarded, you know, or I'm not a migrant at the border or living in, you know, Kabira slum in Kenya. I mean, what, why? It could be me, and it could be me in a minute, you know? Things could turn really quickly here. We, we don't know what's gonna happen. So that's been a great sense of solace for me in my life as well. You know, I became a single mother at 52 and I adopted my daughter from China, which is, you know, illuminated my life. and. I remember the first time, she was three years old, the first time we were making a bed, she was doing something. And I said, don't do, don't do that. And she said, why? And I said, because I told you so. And I was like, <laughs> I just did it. And then I turned around and I like waved to the millions of other people who had said that in their lives because I told you and I'm like, hi, everybody. And they're all like, hi, hi, hi. And the same thing happened when my brother died. You know, when Johnny died, I felt a life-stopping grief, you know, like mm -hmm. a life-stopping grief. And I realized very quickly that all these people, all these people, millions, trillions throughout years, centuries had known this. And now I belong to them too. Mm -hmm. And I was so glad for their company. It wasn't just happening to me. It's like, oh my God. And I, I literally turned around and there they were just raising their hand to me. Like, hi, hell, you know, hello. And I was like, oh, I'm just so happy to see you all. I'm so sorry. And I'm so glad to be in your company. And that, that kind of identification is just made life possible. You know, it feels as if once we realize we're not the only ones, anything is happening to it, it becomes a it becomes a different experience entirely. You're you're speaking about the deep interconnection, the communal sense of what it means to be alive. That that no one, even the dead, are not dead. And oh, no, you, of course know, not. you know, I mean, yeah, of course, but it's kind of we believe the surface. Sometimes we believe they're dead or, and then all of a sudden you realize, hey, they're over my shoulder. Right. And they're all going. They're saying hello. With this very kind, warm and welcoming smile. Yeah. So that there's this sense of, I mean, I've been reading, um, you know, what's his name? Seneca, the Stoic. Yep. Absolutely. 
during this quarantine, I just read a letter a day, almost every day, like five days a week. And um, he's all about this. Mm -hmm. he's, he's like, I think the people in 12-step program just read Seneca because he's cha change what you can, don't change what you, don't try, even try to change what you can. But he's saying in Rome in those days, I mean, you really could. Like he, he, he cites a man who was terrible to his slave. Everybody had slaves. And somehow the man went bankrupt, something happened and his slave became his owner. I mean, this, you could, he said, you could slip so quickly. You could end up in the Colosseum when you least, ex you know, he said, and his whole thing is philosophy has to be able to help someone if they're enslaved, if they're facing death, if they're, you know, walking into a fire, philosophy has to be able to accompany them. There. Now he's talking about the Stoics philosophy, right? But I guess what helps me is the sense of, yes, the community of human experience, and that we're never alone in it. Yeah, yeah. And we can be with people through the imagination. Well, Keats, John Keats said, "I believe in the truth of the imagination," and so if you, if you imagine being with someone, even if it happened last week, even if someone's being smothered, let's say, even if they can't breathe. I know this is a leap, but I really do believe that if we, we can somehow accompany them even later, because time isn't linear, it's circular, so that there's some way that we can be with, I keep thinking of Sandra Bland, because if I had been in that car and the policeman stopped me for a stupid, you know, broken tail light or whatever, and had said, put out your cigarette, I would have said, I don't have to put out my cigarette. Um, and what probably wouldn't have happened to me that happened to her, uh, being arrested for that, threatened with being tased, tasered. But I keep thinking of her and I just, I would think about her a lot and just, just sort of be with her in that car. And I don't know if it helps her then, but I don't know. I think we can accompany each other. Yeah, I don't think that's strange sounding at all. To me, it, imagination is not fantasy. Imagination is actually embodying forth, making it happen. I mean, we know if people are hardcore scientists, they know we've done the kind of brain tracing that right. your mind doesn't know the difference between an imagined thing and an actual thing. Right. It, it's the exact same thing to your brain, to your body. So you could be imagining that you're getting shot at or you could be getting shot at and it's going to release the same hormones and everything in your body and you're going to freak. So it seems to me it's not too far of a leap to suggest that imagination in some way can can keep us in touch. And I, I have no problems with the idea of nonlinear time. I mean, that makes sense to me. This concludes part one of a two-part episode. Stick with us next week when we hear part two. We are Encountering Silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, 
kevinmichaeljohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is carlmccollman.com. Please visit the podcast website at encounteringsilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit patreon.com slash encountering silence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all too noisy world.